Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud, episode 56, with me, your host, Jackie Shea. And I eventually, like, got up onto this other seat, and he came over, and I just said, like, I left my relationship, and I have to get brain surgery. I believe that if you want to overcome illness and thrive in life, then self-advocacy and hopeful connection through shared experience are necessary ingredients. Healing Out Loud is designed to bring you just that, inspiring, relatable voices that have made it through their darkest days to ultimate triumph by advocating for themselves and engaging with empowering self-care tools. I want you to start healing today. If you like what you hear and want more, there are three ways you can stay in touch. Follow me on Instagram at Jackie. that's S-H-E-A-J-A-C-K-I-E, Join my newsletter at JackieShea.com or contact me directly through JackieShea.com and I will see how I can support you and meet your specific needs. If you missed the last episode with Amy B. Cher on how to heal yourself from anxiety when no one else can, check it out at JackieShea.com slash 55. I highly suggest it. It is a very useful episode. In just a moment, we're going to meet my guest this week, Eva Hagberg-Fisher. This is Eva's second time on the podcast, so to hear her, well, to hear us discuss life-changing self-care tools, go to JackieShea.com slash 49. Eva Hagberg-Fisher is an author, educator, and media strategist. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wallpaper, Dwell, Wired, The House, Guernica, and more. She holds degrees in architecture from Princeton and UC Berkeley and a PhD in visual and narrative culture from UC Berkeley. How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship, is her debut memoir and was called Stunning by the New York Times, Dazzling by Publishers Weekly, and Surprisingly Funny by most readers. (laughs) I'm going to dive in with Eva as much as I can, asking her about what led her to her mast cell activation syndrome diagnosis, how illness changed her and her life for the better, how to face and heal intimacy issues while ill, what her support community did for her, mold toxicity, and we will dive into lessons on how to be an amazing friend to the sick and how to heal from illness trauma. You guys, the book is absolutely amazing. Pick it up today. How to Be Loved, A Memoir of Life-Saving Friendship. And share this episode with anyone you know who's struggling with illness or anyone you know who's supporting a friend or a loved one with illness. It's so enlightening to how we can really be there for each other and how illness can inspire us to be a stronger community. Hi, Eva. Hi, Jackie. How are you this morning? Um, I'm I'm great, mostly. Um, I'm a little anxious. I'm a little distracted. I'm a little, like, hyped up because I'm on book tour. So I'm like... It's funny because I was anticipating book tour just being like constant stimulus and like I was going to be so overwhelmed and it's mostly just like 90% downtime in my hotel room, um, ignoring my emails because I put on an autoresponder, but then being like, what am I doing with my life? Mm. Two question marks, as my friend Lauren likes to say. (laughs) And I mean, you're on book tour, so you're clearly doing a lot with your life. Um. Yeah, that's the external uh, feedback that I get. But you I, don't feel that? No, no. I feel like I mostly, for my entire life, just like 
get on Instagram, do some tweets, lie down, <laughs> call my friends, text them. Yeah. And you flew a friend out mm-hmm. to have a friend with you on book yeah. tour to support you. Yeah. I mean, that's master necessary. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I love that that seemed necessary because you were like, I just need to not be doing this all <clears> alone. <throat> By the way, I'm sick. So <laughs> I should have said that earlier, but enjoy my voice today. It is beautiful as ever. Thank you. Um, yeah, I love that you did that. I thought it was a really a radical self-care move. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. So <clears throat> back when I started this podcast in like 2017, fall of 2017, you were meant to be my first guest. Right. And I was like – oh, cool, I'll come up to Berkeley and we'll do this other thing that we're doing and then we'll record. And I got there and you were like, yeah, just one thing. (laughs) You were like, I just can't talk about anything illness related. And I was like, it's it's kind of about illness. And you were like, yeah, so my editor told me I'm not allowed to talk about anything until the book comes out. I was like, cool, cool, cool. When does the book come out? And you were like, February 2019. And I was like, huh, that's a long time away. And here we are. Here we are. It's February 2019. (laughs) What I hear in your story is I could have given you some advance notice. But, (laughs) you know, we all have strengths and we all have growth opportunities. (laughs) I just showed up and you were like, actually. I know. I remember you had like your podcast equipment and you were like ready to go. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. So amazing. (laughs) Glad we're still friends. I know. Your book is an amazing piece of literature, and I told you that. An absolute page-turner and deeply touching read about your journey through elusive illness, three surgeries, and mold toxicity, all the way up to a mast cell activation syndrome diagnosis. Four years deep, you were, I think, in illness world when you got your mast cell diagnosis. Yeah, I mean – like one of the things that I learned in my diagnosis was that a lot of the weird things that had happened for years and years and years were actually part of mast cells. So I don't really, and I sort of address this in the book. There's a section where I'm like, everybody asks how it started. And I keep being like, oh, it started with this, but actually before that, this, and before that, this, and before that, this. And then I sort of critique this idea of wanting to know, like, well, when did it start? And how did you know something was wrong? So yeah, in a way, I was, I think, like 32 years into however old I was, 35, what, I can't remember how old I am, Um, 30 plus years into illness. And in another way, I was into... um two years of just like really, really intense kind of nonstop, just like life-threatening almost diagnosis after life-threatening almost diagnosis, like the intensity. I was like two years into intensity. Oh, really? It was just Mm -hmm. two. I mean, not just two. (laughs) I mean, just two years of surgeries on your most vital organs. (laughs) Real big. Um, Right. So you get this. So your book is, and your book is not really about illness it's about mm-hmm. friendship right so yep. it's it's your journey through this time learning to be vulnerable <clears throat> and experience connection love and meaningful friendships um you learned how to be loved and how to love something that 100% did not come naturally to you before illness i mean no. it did you were born love but then life happened and you became a conditioned self and you were like not you did not know where to put your love. That's something you say in your book. Like, I had all this love to give and I just didn't know where to put it. I'd never been told where to put it, mm-hmm. I think you say. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I often joke that I'm so happy I met you in illness and not before. <laughs> oh, t- yeah. We would not have been friends before. No. I mean, you, you would not have wanted to be friends with me. You would not I have wanted to be friends with me. I would or always want to be friends with you. Or maybe you. we would have wanted to be friends because we were both so much mm. this way. That's a deep Did call. you know that? Like, I mean, you do know that about I do me. know that. But I think it's like, I can imagine, but I only know you with the full force of like, Jackie now slash since we met. Yeah, I know. Like, I believe you abstractly and hypothetically. But I also actually, I see the same things in you that I see in myself still. Yeah. You know, I think we both, well, I don't want to speak for you, but like I still struggle with all the same stuff that I struggled with before. Yeah. I just have like a moment of like, wait, Eva, remember what it was like when you thought you were dying. Like remember yes. that clarity. And so now I have a touchstone, whereas before I was just like, I imagine that there's another way to live. I've read books about people who find meaning and like intimacy in the moment, but like that's inaccessible. Yeah. Unfortunately, that will never happen for me. Yeah. And I tell, yeah, so I I do. I tell people the same of me. Like, I'm so glad you didn't meet me before Mm because you're meeting like the the Mm 2.0 version. (laughs) I'm on like 7.0 for myself. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I know. It's like getting sober is 2.0 maybe. And then it's like this thing and that thing or or starting to drink is 2.0. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's so many. Um, I'm a much softer person now and um, I'm interested in what the most pain you felt in your life prior to a physical illness was. Um, Emotional pain or physical pain? I mean, I don't really care about the time you broke your leg, if you ever did. So I'm guessing... Well, I was going to tell you about the time that I broke my wrist and my elbow, um, because that was the most pain I'd ever been in. Tell me. I mean, it's so funny that you went there, because you're like, (laughs) no, that's not what I'm interested in. Your emotional pain. Okay, great. Um, I was like, my wrist really hurt. But actually... So I broke my wrist. This is this is actually relevant. Uh-huh. I broke my wrist by like flying over my handlebars and landing like, you know, all my body weight on my wrist and couldn't move my hand, couldn't move my elbow, called a friend. And she said, like, you would know if it was broken. Like the pain of a broken bone is extraordinary. You would know. Trust me. And I was like, well, definitely not broken because I would know. Right. Cause I have a, I have a regular metric for pain. So I took an Advil and I like made a little like spatula splint at home and tried to go to sleep. And two days later, I got an x ray and I'd broken my wrist and my elbow. And I was just walking around believing that there was some level of pain that like would indicate to me that something was serious and I had not yet achieved that level of pain. Wow. So like that's how I was with my body. Right. Before I got sick, is I was like, I can't, I literally can't move my hand. I can't move my elbow. I'm in excruciating physical pain, but like clearly I have simply sprained it and I should like, like I remember I was blogging for a website and I learned, I taught myself how to type one handed within like a day and I was just so afraid of telling my editor that I couldn't type quickly with two hands, but I would still really try and do the posts that I had to do. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of like, yeah, I mean, maybe, go- okay. Like, you can also go to the doctor or whatever. Mm, does that break your heart a little bit? That, like, um, you that you didn't care for yourself in that way at that time? Um, I mean, I think in another 10 years of therapy, yes, it will. I think now I'm still sort of like, 
Oh, what a strange story. Because there was so much, like, funny shit that happened with that arm break. Like, I, you know, went to a strip club with a friend of mine and had my, like, spatula arm and was, like, taking dollar bills out of, like, a cash bag. And, like, you know, like, I made it work for me. Right. So I think the heartbreak will come in 10 years. I'll be like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, poor Eva. <laughs> but now I'm still in like the stripper cash bag spatula right. splint story. Okay. Okay. So emotional pain? <laughs> Back to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I was so disconnected from emotional pain that I would sort of like I would feel a a, a moment of it and then I would just I'm thinking about a breakup that I had in New York. This was my first one. So I I've been sober for like a year and a half and I broke up with my boyfriend. And I was really sure I wanted to leave. I was just like, I'm out. Um, and I moved into my new apartment and I, I, and I started looking at like vacation photos from a vacation that we had taken together. And I just started crying. And I was sure that there was something deeply wrong with me because I was crying so hard over a relationship that I had wanted to leave. And I called my stepmother and I was like, I'm crying so much. This is really weird. This must mean that I made a mistake. And she was like, get on a train, come upstate. She and my dad live like two hours north of New York City. And I remember just going up there and I think they were sort of like, yeah, I think you're, this is what a breakup feels like. But I'd never been sober for a breakup. I'd never been sober for any sort of emotional pain. And so it was like, I remember feeling like I was processing the pain of every single breakup that I'd ever had because I had just deferred my emotional reactions. Mm. And I was just so sad and I cried so much. Yeah. You talk in the book about how you didn't cry in public for a decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so take us through the journey from that to the vulnerability you surrender to an illness when you did finally surrender to illness. Allison says in the book, which I love, that illness, um, it just takes you and beats you like a fish. Mm-hmm. So when did you stop pushing and give in and, and give in to all of these parts of yourself that you were not really interested in? Yeah. Um, I think the shift happened really suddenly. So I was in this – I was in a different relationship um, and the relationship was really difficult and challenging, but I was very ashamed of how difficult and challenging it was. So I didn't talk about it a lot um, and was like pretty buttoned up and like, oh my God, let me tell you this hilarious story, right? So that's sort of the context. I'm in this relationship, which I think is my biggest problem in life as well as grad school. And I have this like extraordinary medical thing happen and I end up in the hospital and um, through a complicated series of events. I have a consult with a neurosurgeon who basically says, like, you have a malignant brain tumor um, and we have to do brain surgery to confirm. But, like, it's pretty slam dunk. He used the word slam dunk. And I was totally numb and I drove uh, – a friend of mine drove me home. I packed up all my stuff. I decided to leave my relationship, like, that moment. And I went to um, a sort of support group that I attend and my friend, like – took me in the doors and Allison was sitting by the door with her dog and Allison looked at me and I just, I sat down on the floor next to her and I just started crying and she like looked to my friend and she was like, I got her like you can go. And it is such a sign of emotional health that I want to cry now. Um, And then my friend Jason, our friend Jason was also there. And I eventually like got up onto this other seat 
and he came over and I just said, like, I left my relationship and I have to get brain surgery. And I just collapsed and cried and he just sat next to me. And it was like the combination of the way that Allison was like, I got this. And then Jason was just able to sit next to me and not be like, well, what does that mean? And what happens next? And like, what do you mean? And are you sure? And he was just like, I'm just going to sit next to you. And I was like, wait, this is an unusual experience. Um, Maybe, maybe I won't be horrifically rejected if I emote in public. Um, And then I was just so like desperate that I kind of had no option. I mean, it felt truly life or death because the intensity of what I was facing was so heavy a burden and I could not carry it by myself. And so I just had to like, I just felt like I was like disseminating risk all the time. Like I just had to express my fear and my horror and my resentment and my anxiety and all this stuff. I just had to like get it out there and have other people carry it with me. You say something about that in the book about how there was no longer time to mm-hmm. learn how to be mm-hmm. loved. Like you just had to accept it. Yeah. I could be misquoting you, but it was something along those lines. <laughs> I know I'm always so precise with the quotes. I yeah. know. I, it was something along those lines yeah. that you were just pushed to this point of there was no more time yeah. to like figure yeah. it out. Right. I just thought that I had infinite time and it was so interesting to do this in therapy and I would work on my intimacy issues at my leisure. And then I was like, you know, and some of it was was emotionally life or death, but some of it was physically life or death where I had to, I had a lot of complications after brain surgery and had to go to the ER a lot and I couldn't drive and Lyft didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And so I had to ask people to take me and I had to just be like, I have to just ask for help. Like I'm lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. I can't get up. I need help. Will you help me? And that was so horrifyingly uncomfortable the first time. And then I just had to like, I couldn't spend – I couldn't – you know, minutes were so precious that I couldn't spend five minutes being like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll be you – know. mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just like, I need to go to the ER. My heart rate is like 140. Right. Right. So it really pushed you to this point of like being vulnerable, asking for help, mm-hmm. taking care of yourself in yeah. a radical way that you never had, right? Yeah, 100. So something happens, I think, when we get sick, we start doing all of those things, mm-hmm. right? We become these really vulnerable people. We ask for help mm-hmm. in all these ways. And we think that, or I thought like, okay, so I'm always going to be this way from here on out. Mm. And then I got well, Mm -hmm. obviously not in this moment, (laughs) (laughs) but then I got well and I, you know, pretty soon thereafter, it became an issue again. Uh huh. So I'm going to push you into the vulnerability um, and connecting because you had such a hard time with that prior to illness. You say in the book – about monogamy, right? Like mm-hmm. you're you're regarding monogamy. You're like, did others feel this way? I never mm-hmm. asked. I wish I had, mm-hmm. right? Because this, this connection thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, Eva, if there's something you want to ask right now. Do mm-hmm. others feel? Do others feel the need for reassurance that they're doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Like I, I am just a bottomless well of need for reassurance. And I just look everywhere for like that one person that I trust enough. It feels like, so Susan Sontag, I think it's Susan Sontag, has this line about loving someone is like removing a piece of your skin and then like waiting for them to give it back. I think this is dysfunctional love. (laughs) But she has this line. And that's how I feel. I feel like I walk around 
with this like piece of my arm missing, right? I just take out a little chunk of arm. And then I look to everybody to be like, can you give me that piece of my arm back? Can mm-hmm. I have it back? Can I like, you know? And like, you know, I'm always in the middle of making big decisions. I'm always in the middle of of massive life transitions. And so, you know, and, and I'm in one again right now and I can just feel like just, I just want some authority figure to be like yes you are right and you are good and you are okay and the you know i yeah i want to know like because i i think from my perception i see other people make decisions and they just say well you know this is what's right for me and i'm gonna do it and i'm like did they have different parents did they like how did they get there yeah i wonder it was a really big issue for me. I relate a lot in your book when you talk about like everyone has the rules and I mm. don't know the rules. So I'm going to ask everybody what the rules are and I'm just going to trust them. Yeah. It was a really big thing for me when I was in my abusive relationship. I, you know, years ago, I hit my bottom with that mm. whole aspect of like just overriding my own truth and trusting somebody else. And I got help for it. And it was one of the first things. I started working on, I can trust myself, I can trust myself, I can trust myself, I can trust myself. And today I kind of make a thing out of like not asking for people's opinions mm-hmm. because I because I am so susceptible yes. and so impressionable mm-hmm. to like caring yeah, and to thinking that they're right. Right. And I also try really hard not to give my opinion unless anybody yeah. – unless somebody directly is like, I want to know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's it can be so dangerous. Yeah. It can be so dangerous when people start being like, here's the right thing to do. And it ne- – I, I mean, it never works too, yeah. right? Like has anybody ever made a good life decision because somebody else like really kind of bullied them into it? Yeah, I don't know. Like – People would have told me to leave that relate. People would have told me not to get involved with the the abusive dude I got involved with, right? right? And it would have been horrible if I didn't because I needed that experience so desperately to change and grow. Okay, that just rocked my world completely. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It never occurs to me that we need this is like the most like I haven't read my own book in a month thing. I was like, never occurred to me that we need difficult things to grow. That's like that's I, what your book I, is I, about. I, yeah, I have, no, I have like the memory of a goldfish. Like literally, I'm just like I was talking to my editor because I had to get. I want to get back to this 100. percent Yeah. But, um, I had to get a surgery like two months before my book was coming out, and I I called my editor and I was like, oh, I'm so ashamed, you know, I because this whole rhetoric is like I'm done, you know, I'm done with illness. I'm great. I have to get the surgery and I need help again and. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. And and she was like, cool. So I have a book to recommend to you that might be helpful. Um, You wrote it. It's called How to Be Loved. Uh, yeah, that just might be useful. So that's yeah, amazing. My, my, my goldfish memory. I also told a, a person that I work with in a personal way like a year ago. I was like, you know, I'm just one of those lucky people. Like everything just works out for me. And she was like, I love that that's your vibe. Like, because do that- you remember <laughs> the last 36 years of your life? And I do, but I really do think that I just, I land on my feet. I come out on top every time. Like, I fully believe that, yeah. you know, but in the book, I mean, there's definitely moments where even people who know, because I'm alive and on book tour, that I end up alive and on book tour, they're like, I don't know if he was going to make it. Yeah, totally. I actually really relate to that. I have a belief that I 
am fine. Like I will yeah. be fine. Yeah. I will come out totally. on top. Totally. It will work for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that belief deeply served me an illness because oh, I was yeah. like, I'm going to get through it. Like I am. Right. Sometimes I felt like I wasn't going to, of course. But right. yeah, you talk a lot about this. I- I'm wondering if that was another gift that came out of your your illness was trusting yourself because though mm. you're at though you're talking about right now like the need for reassurance it doesn't seem like you had that when you were really oh, yeah. sa- saving your life yeah so right so the f- the first act is sort of like how you know the first act is like character establishment right like mm-hmm. who is this person why would she need to have her life saved emotionally um and then the second act is really like very sort of Western identifiable medical problems, right? So I have this like exploding brain cyst and then I have this heart condition and it's very, um, it's very clear. It's very evident, right? And then in the third act, I basically am told that I have mold toxicity. Um, by a doctor who's like, do not go on the internet, do not Google like mold, you know, toxicity, which of course I did. And the last thing he said was like, do not end up in a tent in Arizona. Like, if you get that far, you have gone too far. And then the next line in my book is, the next time we talked, it was from my tent in Arizona. So I basically, you know, I got sick, and um, I got sick again in this really nebulous way. And I spent six weeks driving around the sort of southwestern American plateau looking for a place that I wasn't reacting to. And... um. And at first, it seemed really rational. Like, we found a lot of mold in our apartment. I had these strange symptoms. It seemed to make sense. You know, I stayed with my in-laws, but then I needed to get to Walnut Creek. And then that sort of made sense. But then the apartment in Walnut Creek seemed really moldy. So then I was like, hmm, well, that's okay. Maybe I should look farther east. And I just kept going farther and farther east until I got to Flagstaff. And then I felt better. So then I was like, okay. So I basically – and I was trying to find – I felt really good in Sedona, but I my – husband was not um he's a physicist and like couldn't work as a physicist in Sedona so I was like let me try and find a place where he can live so I'm driving around and the feedback that I got from people was pretty universally like gosh it sounds like this is an intense time and the feedback that I later learned I was getting was I'm pretty sure everyone thought that I was just having not just people thought that I was having some kind of psychotic break or some sort of nervous breakdown or whatever. And I remember so desperately just wanting to explain to people and sending them these like medical articles about, you know, why I needed glutathione injections to detox myself and like whatever, all this stuff. And I really, really, really needed somebody to be like, yes, you are right, it is mold. And finally, I just realized that like the symptoms that my body was exhibiting were beyond my control and I could not make them stop no matter how hard I tried. And I tried to change my symptoms so many times. I mean, I I would look at myself in the mirror and I would be like, stop this nonsense. Like, stop it. And I, and I couldn't because, as I learned later, my body was having like cascading mast cell reactions to things. You know, I was going into like low-grade anaphylactic shock, uh, you know, multiple times a day. Um, but I didn't know that. And so... I did actually give up and um, 
And I was like, okay, I'll just sleep in a tent in Arizona forever because I felt like fairly well when I was doing that. And then I read Sarah Mangusa's Two Types of Decay, which is this amazing memoir. And somehow reading that book, I just thought maybe there's an answer and I'll just try one more time. And I called my doctor and he was like, well, this is weird that you're living in a tent in Arizona. And like, wait, what's going on? And then he was like, I'm going to send you a paper on this disease. And then I read it and then I cried for three days and like, here we are. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. I mean, and my friend Jen Brea, our friend made this movie unrest and there's an amazing scene where she and her husband are setting up a tent and he goes inside really quickly and then he comes out and she's like you have to change your clothes because you went inside you know you're now covered in mold spores and he sort of looks at her exasperatedly and then she says if your if you if your body heard the signals that my body hears you would you would 100% comply and he says yes and conversely my body does not hear the signals at all. And so it's really, really hard for me to like imagine, you know, empathetically. I'm paraphrasing. But I think that's what happened is I had to be like, my body is the only body that is having these signals, but I, but I, but it's having them. I can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really resisted ending the book with a diagnosis because I, I didn't want to, I kind of didn't want to have the like triumphant ending of a, of a quote unquote, like real diagnosis. Like I really wanted readers to be like, maybe there's never going to be an answer. And like, what is it like to accept that? But I'm a very conventional writer and I believe in very conventional structures and it did not work not to have an ending. Yeah. You know, like the book was just like, well, I, who knows? I'm talking to birds and my editor was like this is not we no but you did get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. right so like Mm -hmm. that's the thing is some people don't but you did yeah and so that is part of your story to get the diagnosis years years in right right? um that's also interesting because in your book and look like we struggle with elusive illnesses a lot today yeah right so this is so relatable Deeply, Mm -hmm. deeply relatable. And you go through this like having to have your own back and take care Mm -hmm. of yourself when so many people are so confused. And I went through that in a really big way. So like what next? What now? What do you Mm -hmm. have? How do you know? Like um, when's it going to end? What do you do to make it stop? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And there are all the people that don't believe in Lyme disease. There are all the people that don't believe in mold toxicity. There are all Mm -hmm. these like – very challenging and it's so hard to get through that and that brings me to this point about befriending other sick people Mm -hmm. which is so useful and in the beginning of your story you have allison who Mm -hmm. has cancer and is dying of cancer yeah and she really is your like point of contact for a person who Mm -hmm. gets Mm -hmm. it in some Mm -hmm. way yeah and then later like we met while you were in a tent in Arizona. Yeah. And it saved my ass because I was in Indonesia getting ozone therapy and Mm -hmm. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And it has been to present day so Mm -hmm. useful to just be like, hey, Eva, tired as fuck, bro. Like, right, right, right. (laughs) Why? What could it be? (laughs) And you're like, right, sure. Like, (laughs) me too. Like, here we are, right? Right, And it's so... It's so useful. Will you talk a little bit about like – because your story is about friendship. But what's the difference? Did you find a difference between people who were overcoming illness or in illness versus Mm -hmm. ones who couldn't understand but did their best and were amazing friends? Yeah. I mean I think that there – so there's this line – where I talk about social media and like how actually important it was and how how really helpful it was. But the downside is that – the structure of Facebook as it was then, right, there was a chronological timeline, 
which reflected something that was not real for me, right? Which is, um, you know, things happen linearly and there's a beginning and there's an end and you just have to follow the story in the sort of timeline. And I say, you know, social media was great, but it didn't help me work through what I worked through with Allison, which was like the the sort of logics of grief and the really surprising like twists where, you know, I would feel relieved when my tumor marker went up and disappointed when my tumor marker went down. And that was something that I felt deeply insane about because I just thought, why do I want my t-? like, I remember it was like, if it got over 20, it was like, you have a tumor somewhere, we just don't know where and we initiate treatment. And it, it got to like 18.9 or something. And, um, and I remember thinking, like, just get to 20. Come on, just get to 20, get to 20, you know, and feeling such deep shame that I, you know, I'm thinking, like, do I just want more attention? Do I want it? You know, do I want to have cancer? Am I like, you know, hoping that people feel bad for me, whatever. And Allison helped me understand, like, certainty feels when you don't have it, like it will be a relief. And all I wanted was relief. I could have talked to a not sick friend who hasn't had a tumor marker, you know, rise or fall for years and not gotten that clarity. Mm-hmm. But my not, my, my not sick friends also were able to not bring any personal agenda or motivation to their support for me. So, and I actually, I mean, our friendship feels very much like a healthy friendship from both categories where I, I never feel like you're invested in my having a particular thing that's like your thing or whatever. Um, but the friends that like didn't have any experience with illness, but did have a lot of experience with like emotional, you know, so- sobriety or emotional recovery or whatever. Um, they were able to like remind me that illness wasn't my whole world and that I still was like funny and I still had a personality and I still, you know, all these things. Um, and I needed both. I mean, I think if I'd been friends with only sick people, I wouldn't have gotten the sort of like levity and lightness and also like, you know, what do you need in this moment? Like, do you yeah. want to go watch a movie? Do you want to whatever? Right. You know, whereas I need to like play detective with you for sure. Whereas I couldn't play detective with Jason, you know, Jason would be like – sure sounds like you have a cold you know yeah i hear you and and there had to be so here's what i really want to ask and this is kind of a sensitive question but i work with a lot of people and i talk to a lot of people that do not have the kind of support that you had or that i had i had a lot of support and um i'm really lucky for that and you're really lucky a lot of people have the experience where they have a couple of close friends Mm-hmm. And those close close friends don't understand elusive illness and don't know how to react to it. Mm-hmm. And they disappear or they're just not good friends, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And people are making friends with sick people on the internet, which yeah. is like can be really tricky. Mm-hmm. And I don't always advise it, but sometimes it works out. Right. What would you say to the people that are reading your book and not having the experience that you had mm. of being surrounded by love? Yeah. But are having the more isolated version. Right. I mean, one, I would say, like, I'm so sorry. That sounds terrible. And I think that, like, this current iteration of my human life is, like, very much oriented towards profound loneliness, kind of no matter what. You know? So, like, I mean, part of the – it's funny because I have some, like, frenemies and I and I worry that they think the book is, like, I'm a dope friend and, like, it's not. It's, like, I'm a fairly mediocre friend, but my friends are amazing. 
But I think that the reason that I was able to have so much support is that I just told the truth about myself and I told the truth about what I needed and I told the truth about not knowing what I needed. And I would hypothesize that some of the reason why people have a hard time supporting somebody who's sick is that there's so many sort of misguided, culturally represented narratives about how to be the friend to somebody who's sick. And they range from like the positive thinker who tells you everything's going to be okay to like, yeah, the the positive thing. I mean, that, that's sort of it. I think like that's our representation. And I know that when Allison was sick, I had no idea how to be with her. And I described that, right? Like I was like, do I, am, like, am I, okay, I'm going to bring her soup. I, you know, I hope this, this kindly old woman accepts my soup. And instead she's talking about like fucking dudes and like doing whatever and like telling me I'm like ridiculous. And, you know, um, our friendship was not like a service, service friendship. So I didn't know how to act, but I was shown how to act with sick people by them kind of taking the lead, right? So with Allison sort of taking the lead and being like, yeah, we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to like talk about TV shows. You're not here to be a repository of like my medical information. And I would imagine that if somebody has two friends and you're sick, that the friends are probably totally panicking and don't really know what to do and don't want to fuck up and are really uncomfortable because the culture has no lessons for this. And so I would say like what I did is I got really, really, really clear on what I needed and I asked for that exactly. So sometimes I needed a ride to the doctor and distraction. And so I would say I need a ride to the doctor. It actually doesn't help me to be present in the moment because I'm really scared. Can you just give me a ride and tell me all about your love life right now? And people would be like, yes. Or sometimes I would need somebody to sit with me and I'd be like, can you come over and I'm probably going to cry and we'll just lie on the floor. And I think that the clarity of my understanding of my own needs and my ability to communicate that, which was only just through uncomfortable practice, led to my friends feeling safe that they could provide me what I needed. Because I think that a lot of the discomfort and abandonment probably comes from people just not knowing what to do and not wanting to do the wrong thing. Mm. So it's like, which was certainly my experience. You know, when I talk about that at the end, where like, I realize of this moment where I realize that like, I have thought that my situation is like so extraordinary. And it's actually not any more extraordinary than like any of the things that my friends went through. But I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing about their divorce or the their miscarriages or their whatever that I just didn't say anything. And, and I effectively abandoned them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's like, just getting really, really real with yourself. And I also know being sick and just feeling so desperate for like, you know, like that reassurance or that support or whatever. And it's so funny because like I'm in a situation right now where I need a lot of support and I, you know, I had an emotional experience yesterday and I could feel I wanted to call you. Like I wanted to call you immediately, right? So like this thing happens, I get this information and I was like, I need to call, I need to call Jackie. I need to process this with Jackie. I can't, you know, this is too much. And instead, I was just like, okay, okay, Eva, you can probably tolerate this. Like, if you really need Jackie, you'll still need her in 10 minutes. But just, like, give it 10 minutes and see what happens. And I texted two other friends in the meantime. You know, I'm not perfectly self-contained. Um, but I but I didn't actually need you. But I could – and I could I could by that point distinguish the difference between, like, true desperation where I really would need to call you even though I'd, I'd last seen you 20 minutes earlier – and like a feeling of desperation, but actually being resourced enough to deal with it mm. with a couple texts that I sent to some friends where just as I was texting, 
you know, they didn't respond. But just me texting, I was able to be like, oh, I'm okay. I have more clarity. Mm. So the too long, don't read version of that is like get really, really clear with your own needs and then ask for them like really, really directly and precisely and try to spread it around. So one thing I also did was like I would ask on Facebook for kind of low impact stuff like a ride. And then people showed up when they wanted to. And then I wasn't relying on only two people. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that. I love that advice. I think Mm -hmm. it's brilliant advice. Oh, great. And we talk about that actually in Jason's podcast where where he would say – he kind of said to people like – or to me – just tell me what you need. If you yeah. tell me what you need, I'll like give it to you. But if you right. don't tell me what you need, then I'm not going to ask. Exactly. And exactly. Like, cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And you know, like a lot of times people don't know what they need. And then you can say like, look, I don't really know what I need. Can you just be here? Yeah. And then yeah. we'll figure it out together yeah. or something, you yeah. know. Um, but I love that. And I love spreading it around. That's really helpful. Um, so based on what you were just saying, it also makes me think about how you talk about how you once judged the sick. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which is really big and it's brave, I think, to talk about that. Mm. And it was true for me too. Mm-hmm. I knew people with Lyme disease mm-hmm. and I judged them. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, they need to yeah. eat gluten free. <laughs> oh my God, they need to go to bed early. Oh my God. Like I I had so many judgments. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this is yeah. just to have like a – an open conversation about like, you know, for people out there that are judging the sick, which there are many, I've been there, I've done it. Yeah. And so it doesn't, it feel like such a relief to not be in that position anymore. Like for me, it's such a relief that I'm not actually walking around judging humanity for having human experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also I, I judged because, um, because I was so afraid of pain. I mean, I judged because I, you remember Allison telling somebody that her that she had breast cancer, and the person the first question was, "Oh, did you smoke?" Right. Mm-hmm. So, what I hear in that is, "What did you do that I don't do that that made you get sick?" And my judgment of people who had you know nebulous illnesses was like, "Okay, well, they obviously want some kind of attention. They, you know, they obviously did this because the alternative is to deeply know that illness is profoundly unfair. It comes for you whether you want it or not." It is not controllable, and it can kill you. And our culture in, you know, the late capitalist crisis in which we are is so reliant on narratives of, like, personal responsibility and progress and um, that I think I, – I really believe that judging sick people is just a manifestation of fear. And, you know, I, I mean <laughs> – Um, someone called my book cheerily brutal, which I think is like the best description because that's kind of my vibe. Like a a friend of mine, a friend of hers passed away recently and we, we got together. We got, I was like, listen, let's have like a pizza floor party. Right. So we got together and I could feel myself. I started to say something like, well, you know, and then I was like, the thing is, yeah, there's no silver lining. This is just fucked up. I was like, this is fucked, dude. Death is fucked. I'm so, like, I didn't even say I'm so sorry because, like, that felt not. But we just sat and then, like, I cried because I knew how much she had loved this person. And, like, watching her love this person in that way had impacted me. And so I got to have an emotional experience with her. 
And I would never have been able to do that because I would have thought, I would have been thinking, what am I going to be like when a person that I love dies? You know, I'm, oh, oh, surely this person is overreacting because I, I cannot tolerate this pain that I observe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is. It's like, I believe that I can't tolerate the pain that I see in other people. And so I'm going to do all sorts of like weird mental gymnastics to be like, well, obviously they are like <laughs> X, Y, Z to infinity, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, different from me. And I will, you know, if I ever got Lyme, well, I would treat it with antibiotics and I would be one of the, you know, whatever percentage of people that it clears up for. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I would be. And it's just denial. And I remember I had a student at UC Berkeley and he said to me once, like, he was like, Eva, you've like learned so much from like the hard things in your life. Like, oh, I really hope I have like a really hard thing happen so I also can learn. And I just said to him, like, the hard thing will come. Like, you don't have to look for it. It will find you and it will fuck you up. And like, <laughs> And just like, you know, I hope that you have friends when it does happen because we don't get out of this – we don't get out of this alive, you know? Yeah. And I deeply, deeply believe that. And so I think that all these like, you know, I'm different, I'm different, I'm different are are, are frantic attempts to say I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear when people judge. Beautiful. Super deep, dude, right? It's super deep. <laughs> yeah. And I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh, my God, I still judge people for having human experiences. Like, I totally do. And I think that I don't. And I don't that often. But I, as you were talking, I was like, oh, my God, I totally just judge somebody. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I, I, mean, wrote, I wrote something called, like, there's no silver lining mm-hmm. forever ago when I was really sick. Mm-hmm. And my point in it was sort of like, look, I was positive that I was going to be a person. It was kind of at the law of attraction mm. because I was like, you guys, I was sure that I was going to beat this with antibiotics. Right. I knew it in my bones. Yeah. And then I didn't. Yeah. And I was sure that I was going to beat it within X amount of time in my bones. And then I didn't. Yeah. And then I knew, like, I I was sure of so many things and mm-hmm. so confident mm-hmm. in who I was as a person mm-hmm. and what I believed. Yeah. And then, but illness took me and beat me like fish. Yeah. Right. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Um. So you talk about like hopefully you have friends when you get there, right? And mm-hmm. and and how illness really broke you open mm-hmm. and gave you this. And as I was reading your book, I was reflecting a lot, a lot on my own experience with illness, mm-hmm. right? Because you you make that reflection so accessible in mm-hmm. your writing. And I realized that what first happened to me is that I had to realize and acknowledge how little love I actually had in my life. Mm-hmm. Like that was my first experience and I had to Mm. grieve deeply Mm. the fact that my family was not available to show up for me. Yeah. Like no love was there for me. Yeah. And that was like pain. Like I have not felt pain, you know? Yeah. And I had to kind of battle through illness. I kept feeling like lonely and loved, lonely and loved, lonely and loved. Mm. Like I would have these fallouts of – people disappearing or feeling abandoned or realizing that my family was in no condition to take care of me and that Mm -hmm. breaking my heart Mm -hmm. and getting like a fucking unbelievable care package on my Mm -hmm. on my doorstep or getting like a venmo payment that from a friend that made that was like out of nowhere right or or like people rallying to take me to get a root canal (laughs) like whatever like and i felt both of these worlds simultaneously did Mm -hmm. you have any of that oh i mean completely yeah and i talk about that too where like 
before brain surgery, I got all these like beautiful gifts. Like some friends sent me a Kindle and some friends sent me an edible arrangement and some friends sent me money and, you know, and, and I really remembered being like, let this land, like Eva, this is, this is like happening. This is, this is real. Like let this in. And it, it took a long time, but like, you know, last night I was, I was, um, I really wanted some support with something. And so I looked through my phone at my like recent calls and I was like, well, there's only three people that I really talk to and one of them isn't available. So, you know, I guess my whole book about friendship is a, is a lie. You know, unfortunately I have done a trick. Um, but then my friend Hani, who is on Hani Lisbon, amazing comedian, um, is on tour with me. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was texting with Jason and then I was texting with Maddie and then I texted with my friend Grace and, you know, I got, and she was just like, the amount of support that you have around you is incredible, you know? And so it makes me think like, what is this core loneliness? And I think it is just an accessibility of the fundamental human condition. Like, I think that if we weren't lonely, we would never be driven to seek connections and be vulnerable and intimate. And so I sort of cherish the fact that I often wake up and um, I love what I heard you say last night that like you wake up and you don't hate yourself and like same like I wake up and I'm like, all right, Eva, here we are again. What are we going to do? But sometimes, you know, I sort of come to in the middle of my day and I think like, oh, I'm alone. Like who's with me? Oh, um, but I use that as a motivating force, you know, to call somebody and be like, um, here's like a funny thing that I just saw or like here's a and I really try to like um intersperse my sort of like need for assistance with just like really light kind of bullshit you know like like jason and i've been texting about a lot of my feelings and then he told me about shoveling ice and then we had like a 25 minute conversation about like shoveling ice and workouts and like people in iowa and like you know and i was like this is also this is like an investment in the friendship like Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to be and i remember you and jason talked about this on your podcast it's like it doesn't always have to be like here's my pain and here's my pain. And sometimes you're just like shooting the shit and you're just like, what, whatever. Let's like go to the, you know, Black Panther, which is a superhero movie, my friend, not a documentary. <laughs> I thought it was a documentary on the Black Panthers, but this is way before <laughs> the Oscars. It wasn't like, oh, the Oscars. <laughs> this is not a documentary. Um, that's amazing. And, and so you talk also a lot about, you know, your experience getting sober. Mm-hmm. And, like, not knowing what was fun and not yeah. knowing who you were. Yeah. And in my experience, that happened with illness, too. Yeah. Like, I got well and then it was like, okay, who am I now? There's this great quote, um, you don't know the new me. I put the pieces back together differently. And something mm-hmm. happens when we break and fall apart that, like, yeah. things change. So will you talk a little bit of – I know you had a lot of PTSD. You have oh, PTSD yeah. around getting touched and then you mm-hmm. went to yoga to heal that. And of mm-hmm. course, like, you were poked and prodded and dug into and, mm-hmm. like, literally, you know, your brain was touched <laughs> and your heart yeah. and, like, yeah. part of your heart was burned off and all of yeah. these things. So you were like, don't fucking touch me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A piece of my brain is in a freezer in San Francisco right now. Yeah. It's, That's creepy. It's super creepy. Yeah. And so you went to yoga, you became mm-hmm. a yoga teacher, or mm-hmm. you didn't, but you got certified. Yeah. yeah. And you healed that. But like, what are some of the other ways you kind of healed the PTSD and started mm. to know yourself after yeah. illness? And was it different? Yeah. I mean, I did so many things. So I did a lot of um, EMDR, which is eye movement uh, desensitization and reprocessing. So it's this, um, it's a treatment that is, I think, was developed or popularized for war vets. Um, and my understanding of it is that it takes what my 
traumatized body thinks happened and what actually happened and it integrates them. So after multiple anesthesias, I, there was a part of me that believed that I had died, right? Which sounds sort of delusional and weird, but there was just this little moment where I was like, am I really, did I make it back? It's like something happened. Something happened while I was under and I don't really know what. And that contributed to my feeling really dissociated and weird and all this. So I did EMDR um, where I took this snapshot that felt really charged, which was of me being like, like sat up. It was me like putting my head on a plate in an operating room and looking up at these lights and then going under and like knowing that my, that my brain was taken out of my head. Right. And I, and I felt like I couldn't, I wrote this essay for Guernica about that. Like I couldn't process that or understand it. So EMDR helped me to really feel what my, what my traumatized mind thought had happened, which is that I had descended into some like nether world and never come back. But what I saw in all these images was that I went into some in between place, but I did not go any farther. Like I very clearly felt that I was like in the ocean, but I got to the bottom of the ocean and underneath the bottom of the ocean was death. But I, I didn't go that far. And with, there's this sort of bilateral stimulation. And so it really like helps the brain integrate. And what, what actually happened is that I had an anesthesiologist who was very good at their job and they protected me and kept me safe. And I awoke and I'm now fine. Right. And so EMDR helped me to integrate that and be like, it was very scary and I'm okay. Instead of like terror, 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 mm-hmm. terror, but I'm okay. Terror, 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 mm-hmm. terror, right? Um, that was one thing. I mean, I did, a, I did a lot of, I just did a lot of grief work. I mean, I would take myself to a hotel and put on this song by Moby called Alone, which just makes me cry instantly. And I would just lie in bed and cry and hold myself and say, you did such a good job. You did such a good job, which was just so embarrassing to do (laughs) but like so loving um i you know what i i worked with um with a body like body energy worker named rachel bouch who gave me a lot of tools to like begin to touch other people so she helped me see that like i could control the amount of contact and so she would let me like we would do this very sort of somatic stuff where she would put up her hand and i would get to reach out and like touch it and then i would hold her hand and then our forearm you know we would sort of like get up until we were holding each other's elbows um and like that was such a safe container so i think like i made myself a lot of very safe containers in which i could begin to sort of reintegrate because that was really what it was it's like the trauma just blew everything wide open and i had to bring it all back together um i did a lot of like meditative energy work with another person um which I still do where I imagine a lot of like filters and different colors around me. Um, and her best tool is um, to sort of imagine all the places I've gone and bring myself back from all of them and fill myself back up with, you know, she'll say like, fill yourself up with you. So I had to do that. I got to do that. I did a lot of like going to the ocean and staring at the ocean. Um you know, I did a lot of like calling you and being like, I'm so embarrassed because this happened two years ago, but I'm like feeling intense grief and you were great. And you were just like, yeah, cool. There's going to be grief. And I've been in therapy for eight and a half years. And I would talk to my therapist and be like, I'm, you know, again, I'm embarrassed and I should be over it. And she was just like, yeah, I think that you just carry this with you now. Like there's actually no getting over something Mm -hmm. like this, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I try to be useful. 
Um, and I wasn't able to do that immediately. And I think that's also really important as I've seen some people get really scary health diagnoses and as a way of coping, be like, well, I'll be useful one day with this. And I'm like, amazing, 100%, I have no doubt. But I found it really helpful to just be not useful and just afraid and and sort of fall apart. Yeah. So that's definitely my story. I did not want to help people with illness. No. No. <laughs> it's, like, it's so funny because that's exactly what I do today. And I was like, no, I don't want to do this at all. Exactly. Um, so one last question. Thank you. Give us a self-care tool. Welcome to our self-care segment of the podcast where we arm you with new, affordable, and easy-to-use tools in each episode to kick some self-care butt. My hope is that you will come to collect a number of ways to take care of yourself inside and out, so add these to your toolbox and watch your inner resourcefulness grow with each use. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness and freedom. Let's dive in. So, um, so this is really part of the like fill yourself back up with you thing. So what I do when I'm strung out on like anything and I can get strung out on anything is I put my hand in the middle of my chest and I just feel what it feels like to breathe. And the fact that I have this sort of like autonomic nervous system that makes my chest rise and fall and I can feel it. And sometimes I put different levels of pressure on, but it has to be like full hand, like palm contact. It can't be a light scared touch. Um, and I just remember that, like, I live – and I know that this might be, like, really difficult for somebody whose body is, like, full of suffering. Um, but I remind myself that, like, I kind of have everything I need, like, inside. Um, and sometimes knowing – sometimes having what I need inside is knowing what kind of support to ask for. But it goes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is like this reassurance. Like fundamentally, the self the self care tool is reminding myself that like I have the power to reassure myself, and I have to do that with my body. I can't do that with my thoughts. So you put your hand on your. I chest. put my hand on the middle of my chest, and I just hold it there for five breaths. Feel your chest rise and fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and know that everything you need is inside of you. Yeah, very simple. Very simple. <laughs> Also radically challenging. Oh, yeah. Simple, <laughs> but not easy. Amazing. Thank you so much, Eva, for coming on. Where can people find you? Where can people get your book, How to Be Loved? Um, so I love it when people get my book at independent bookstores. And if the bookstore doesn't have it, you can always ask them to order it, which is great because then it shows that there's interest. Um, but of course, it's also available at all major online retailers. Um, my website is evahagbergfisher.com. My hot tweets are at Eva Hagberg. Um, on Twitter where I mostly tweet about architecture. So don't be, don't be too confused. And then my self owns are on Instagram at Eva Hagberg Fisher. Yes. Thanks Eva. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at ShayJackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shay Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.